0: Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Good morning, everybody. Maybe you heard about the guy who fell in love with an opera singer. He hardly knew her since his only view of the singer was through binoculars from the third balcony but he was convinced that he could live happily ever after married to a voice like that. He didn't notice that she was 35 years old or that he didn't care that she even walked with a slight limp. Her soprano voice would take them through whatever life may bring them. Well, after a whirlwind romance and a hurry-up ceremony, they were off to their honeymoon. She began to prepare for their first night together, but... As he watched, his chin dropped to his chest. First, she plucked out her glass eye and plopped it into a container on the nightstand. She then pulled off her wig, ripped off her false eyelashes, and yanked out her dentures. She then unstrapped her artificial leg and smiled at him as she slipped off her glasses that hid her hearing aid. Stunned and horrified, the man said, for goodness sake, woman, sing, sing, sing. (laughs) Sometimes we expect one thing and are completely surprised by something else. Disciples must have felt that way when they were locked up in a room full of fear, when Jesus appears out of nowhere and says, peace be to you. Let's look at verse 19. Now when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut, where the disciples were together, due to fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be to you. Just as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. The disciples had gathered together in an unspecified location, and it says the doors were locked. At this time, the disciples were expecting that any minute the temple police would arrive to arrest them and end this entire movement. The authorities had executed their master and they not unreasonably feared that they might be next. It says that they were locked up due to fear of the Jews. One thing I've learned over the years is that fear is like fungus. It grows most rapidly in the dark. And So we need to therefore to bring out all of our fears in the light of the death, burial and resurrection of Christ. But suddenly something happened that was far more startling than would have been the arrival of the temple police. Jesus came and stood in their midst, and he was in their midst, though no one had opened up the door. Hearts raced. Adrenaline flowed. Goosebumps appeared on goosebumps. And then Jesus gave them the supreme greeting, Shalom, peace be with you. Now, we don't know exactly how the Lord's body did these things. Apparently, our resurrection bodies will have special properties that will allow it to violate the normal laws of physics as we know them. And we can even disappear and even pass through solid objects. If you've ever stubbed your toe on a chair, this should be a cause of great rejoicing. But whatever the case is, our hope is to have a body just like the Lord's. It is one that is indestructible, but can still give and receive hugs, enjoy the best of foods, and apparently go anywhere instantly. It's the kind of body that loses weight no matter how many Little Debbie snack cakes you consume. So, here are the disciples, with questions mounting and confusing, confusion rising like the waves of a sea, When suddenly, just as before on that lake, Jesus comes to them and he stills their storm. And what does he say to them? He said, I am through with you, you bunch of knuckleheads. You guys are busted. Where have you been? I'm on the cross and you're running around pretending like you don't even know me. What's the big idea? But that's not what Jesus said, is it? He comes to them and he says, Peace. And that's what he says to you this morning. Peace. And what is peace? One definition applies the word to a relationship between countries, calling it an agreement to end hostilities. Another calls it public order. A third definition calls peace harmony in personal relations. But none of these definitions, good as they are, does justice to what Jesus really meant when he offered peace peace. To man, When Jesus spoke of peace to his disciples, he was speaking first and foremost of having peace with God. This is the peace that is brought on by his suffering on the cross. And it is significant because of the fact that we as a people are not at peace with God naturally. According to the Bible, men are at war with God. They are opposed to him. Consequently, it would be up to God to make peace through Christ's cross. This is Romans 5.1. There having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It follows from this that peace must be on God's terms. I read that aboard the battleship USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay off the coast of Japan... General Douglas MacArthur, commander of the armed forces of the United States in the Far East, received the symbols of surrender of the Japanese people. You see, Japan had been decisively defeated as a result of the war in the Pacific, and so she surrendered on this occasion to America's terms. Now. What would we think of a case in which the Japanese delegation arrives at the peace table and they want to bargain on terms of a settlement? We would say, that's ridiculous. The time for bargaining is long past. At this point, MacArthur was to dictate terms of peace to the people of Japan and their only thing they could do was simply to receive them. Well, says God, If you recognize this truth on a human level, recognize it also on a spiritual level. This is the way it must be between myself and rebellious sinful men and women. Now people will try to come to me and present to me their terms. They say, if you do so and so for me, then I will serve you and we will get along famously together. But the Lord would answer, just like MacArthur There is no room for bargaining. If you want peace, you must receive it only in the way I provide it. And how was that peace procured? My only begotten son died to make peace. And so if you are going to enter into my peace, it must be by faith in him and what he has done. The wonderful thing is that when we come to God on those terms we find out that God is not hostile. He is no longer looking towards us in wrath. There are no frowns. Instead, he receives us with smiles and makes us his sons and his daughters. Verse 20 says that Jesus showed them his hands and sighed, and they rejoiced. Luke records that he said to them, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see." For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. Recognizing him at last, the disciples must have rejoiced when they saw the Lord. But before even that, he offered a conclusive proof that he was not a spirit by eating a piece of broiled fish. So it gradually dawned on these grieving people that their master was not dead, but was alive. And what a difference it made when the full realization of the resurrection finally took hold of them. For Mary Magdalene, it meant moving from tears to joy. For the ten disciples, it meant going from fear to courage. And from Thomas, it meant moving from doubt to assurance. With Mary, the emphasis is on love. With the ten, the emphasis is on hope. And with Thomas, the emphasis is on faith. Jesus said, I am sending you, and then he breathed the Holy Spirit upon them. He illustrated the promise of the coming Holy Spirit by breathing on his disciples, recalling the act of creation in the Old Testament, and also the image of the dry skeletons becoming live people again in Ezekiel. Now this is a difficult verse with many interpretations. I will give you mine. I think it was an actual, though partial, impartation of the Holy Spirit given before Pentecost. In Luke, we read that after this, that their understanding was opened so that they might understand the Scriptures. I think that means they received from him a pledge of an earnest of the greater fullness that would be coming on the day of Pentecost. That's the best I can do with it. Be Bereans and study it yourself and see what you come up with. <laughs> Look at verse 23 with me. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. What does this mean? Let me first tell you what it certainly does not mean. It's not like you can go to the mall, stand up on a table in the food court, and start pointing at people and pronouncing, Your sins are forgiven, yours are not, yours definitely aren't, and I'm not so sure about you. That's not what this means. This is the importance of context. Always remember, every verse has the context of a paragraph. The paragraph has the context of a chapter. The chapter has the context of the book, and the book has the context of the entirety of the rest of the Bible. Despite that, This verse has been misinterpreted by Roman Catholics to mean that the Roman Catholic Church has had the apostles' authority to forgive sins passed down upon it for apostolic, that's what I said, apostolic succession. Thank you. But scripture clearly teaches that God alone can forgive sins. Nor does the New Testament record any instances of the apostles or anybody else absolving people of their sin. Furthermore, this promise was not made just to the apostles since Luke records there was also others that were present in that room. What Christ is actually saying is that any Christian can declare that those who genuinely repent and believe the gospel will have their sins forgiven by God. This was not new information to the disciples, as the Lord had spoken very similar words to them before in Caesarea Philippi when he said, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In other words, the disciples did not provide forgiveness, they proclaimed forgiveness on the basis of the message of the gospel. So too today, you and I can declare that a sinner is forgiven or unforgiven based on how that sinner responds to the gospel of salvation. Therefore, to the one who says, I don't feel forgiven, it is our responsibility to say, well, according to the word of God, if you have repented and opened your heart to Christ and believe in his work on the cross, the Bible says, your sins are gone. I can declare you forgiven. Conversely, to the one who says, I don't really need Christ, I'm into New Age, or I'm not all that bad, certainly not as bad as Hitler, it is our responsibility to say to them, well, then your sin still remains, because only the blood of Christ can wash that away. So just remember, we proclaim, not provide. Verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, who was called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came, so the other disciples were saying to him, "We have seen the Lord." But he said to them, "Unless I see his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe." My favorite story concerning a skeptic takes place back in the time of the French Revolution during what was called the Reign of Terror. People were being executed right and left. And one morning, three men were waiting to be executed. The first one was a priest. As he was brought to the guillotine, he was asked, Do you have any final words? He answered, I believe God is going to save me. He put his head into place, and the blade came down, and it stopped two inches from his neck. The executioner said, This must be a miracle. And they let him go. The next man came up. He was a pastor. The executioners asked him, do you have any last words? He said, I believe God's going to save me too. They put him on the block. The blade came down and it stopped two inches from his neck. They said, this is another miracle. We have to let him go. The third man came up. He was a skeptic and an atheist. He did not want to be associated with those Christians. The executioners asked him, do you have any last words? Looking at the guillotine, he said, well, I think I see your problem or something jammed up here in the gear mechanism. You know, sadly, skeptics would rather, even at their own expense, appear to be right than to ever take the chance of trusting God. And one of the disciples was so well known for this skepticism that it earned him a nickname, Doubting Thomas. We see him three different times in the Gospel of John. We are told that Thomas wasn't in the room with the rest of the disciples for Jesus' initial appearance. I suppose... One of the saddest things I see as a pastor are the disciples who miss the meeting. Now, I'm not talking about if you are sick or a situation has arisen where you must stay at home. I'm talking about when people choose to stay at home simply because it's too inconvenient to come to church. I read about a mother who went to to wake her son one morning for church. She knocked on his door and said... He said, I'm not going. Why not, asked his mother. I'll give you two good reasons, he said. One, they don't like me, and two, I don't like them. His mother replied, well, I'm going to give you two good reasons why you are going to church. One, you're 47 years old. And secondly, you're the pastor. Look. I live in a tent of flesh just like you guys. I know it's hard sometimes to come and be in the assembly of the saints. But I can't overstress the importance of our meeting together. I've had people tell me, I can worship and have church at home. But Jesus didn't go to Thomas's house, did he? He went to where the saints were already meeting together. What does Hebrews 10:25 command us? And yes, it is a command. This is not a suggestion. It says, Let's hold firmly to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to encourage one another with love and good deeds, not abandoning our own meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and even more so as we see that the day is approaching. Now, I'm no rocket surgeon, but the only way I see that we can encourage one another is if we are together. And it says we are to be even more faithful to this as we see the day drawing near. And honey, if you look at the culture that we live in, that is a flashing neon sign saying that time is running out. So Thomas is a good warning to all of us not to miss meeting with God's people on the Lord's day. But not only that, think about this. Because Thomas was not there, he missed seeing Jesus Christ and hearing his words of peace and commission and a gift of spiritual life, which meant he had to endure a week of fear and unbelief when he could have been experiencing joy and peace. So let's all remember Thomas when we are tempted to stay home from church. We never know what special blessing that we might miss. Okay, he says, unless I see the imprint of the nails and put my finger into a side, I will not believe. Thomas, it seems, was like the eternal pessimist, like Eeyore in the Winnie the Pooh stories. It seems he was kind of a melancholy person with an uncanny knack for finding the dark cloud in every silver lining. But the depths of Thomas's doubt occurred after Jesus had appeared to the other disciples who were gathered together after the resurrection. All of them were there except Thomas. They were overjoyed and couldn't wait to tell him. Now it is interesting the text doesn't say why Thomas wasn't with them. Was he distancing himself from them? We just don't know. But they couldn't wait to tell him. Thomas, we saw him. He is alive. He's risen from the dead. They must have been absolutely stunned by the response of Thomas. He said, I don't believe you. I was born in Missouri, the show me state. What Thomas was saying to the other disciples was they were they were either lying or they were simply delusional. After all, he knew better. He knew them, he knew Jesus. He had heard him teach and seen and saw him perform miracles. More than any other human being at that time, Thomas had good reasons to believe. But he chose the skeptic's path and he gave a striking response. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Some say that Thomas spoke for the whole world. Give me proof and I'll believe. I'm not so sure. I think the world's view today is more like show me the facts and I'll invent another theory. Thomas' words help us to understand, though, the difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt says, I cannot believe there are too many problems. Unbelief says, I will not believe, even if you give me the evidence that I ask for. But let's not be too hard on Thomas. Let's keep in mind that until Jesus appeared in that locked room, the track record of those other ten disciples was no better. They too had scoffed at the initial reports of the resurrection and also failed to believe the scriptures that had predicted it. The phrase doubting Thomas never occurs in the Bible, but there he does have another nickname that sheds light on what we could say, doubt gone wrong. Like like most people in that day, Thomas had two names. Thomas is Aramaic and Didymus is Greek, and they both mean twin. Who was Thomas's twin? We do not know for sure, but sometimes I think we could probably feel like that maybe we are his twins. I mean, how often have we refused to believe and have insisted that God prove himself to us on a certain matter? Twice John mentions that he is called Thomas, also called Didymus. And names had significance back then in the ancient writings. And so John surely doesn't mention this one twice by accident. Nowadays, of course, twins are celebrated. But twins in the ancient world were generally regarded as negative omens. You see, they messed up the laws of inheritance. And also, back then, the mortality rate around twin births was much higher than single births. But there is another way in which Thomas's name is significant. In many languages, including the Greek, there's a connection between the words for doubt and to, T-W-O. We have a similar case in the English in the relationship between doubt and double. They both come from the same root word. To doubt is to be of two minds. The Chinese speak of a person having a foot in two separate boats. So I guess the question we're asking ourselves this morning is, is there room for doubt in the Christian life? I think the answer is yes. For sometimes doubt is really just the raw side of honesty. Such as a time when the man admitted to Jesus, I do believe, help thou my unbelief. But by doubt, I do not mean unbelief. They appear to be the same, but there are differences. For you see, unbelief has been defined as rebellion against evidence that we cannot or will not accept. But doubt is simply stumbling over a stone that we do not yet understand. But unbelief, especially the hardened variety of it, is like kicking at a stone that we understand all too well. Here's what that sounds like. God, if you will do this for me, I will believe in you. The problem with that is that it intimates that we, for one thing, are smarter than God. It also reverses the role between God and man, and that is very unhealthy and even dangerous. Because it puts us in the position of the leader of the relationship, and God being the follower. Also, a dishonest doubter will always raise the bar. Often he wants evidence that is simply not available. Like someone who would say, I would believe in God if he would write my name in the sky. Those who pray such prayers will never overcome their doubts. I want us to see this morning, there's a difference between honest doubt and dishonest doubt. By honest doubt, I mean an attitude of openness to the evidence. An honest doubter is willing to change his mind if the data warrants it. Enter Doubting Thomas. When we meet Thomas in heaven, I wonder if he's going to be upset that the name doubting has been attached to his name. When I typed that last night, I thought, no, Bill, he'll be in heaven. Probably won't be upset about anything. Thomas was a doubter. But thankfully, he was an honest doubter. And when the evidence was presented to him, he became a fervent believer. One other thing. I want us to understand this morning, that Thomas's pessimism should not be allowed to obscure the courage that the man had. It was Thomas, back in chapter 11, who when Jesus wanted to go to Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead, even though it says the Jews were waiting to stone him there, it was Thomas who said, Let's go too, that we may die with him. Yeah. Even though he thought the situation was completely hopeless, he nonetheless was willing to lay down his life for the sake of his Lord. His love for Christ was so strong that he would prefer to die with him rather than to be separated from him. Thomas was many things, but he was no coward. And the end of his life proves that. After catching a cargo ship to India to preach Christ, Thomas was warned by them to be quiet. When he kept preaching, his opponents ran a spear through his back. But the church that he started in India is still flourishing this morning. I can tell you one thing. I wouldn't want to compare my Christian walk with that of the Apostle Thomas. As we finish up today, in 1842, George Matheson was born in Scotland. Later, although he was a blind student, his sisters helped him earn two degrees at the university. As a minister, he would memorize the sermons along with the scriptures and the hymns for that day's service. So obviously, he knew the scriptures very well and was constantly in fellowship with Christ. Yet there came a point in his life when he experienced a deep and profound period of doubt. In his despair, he wrote about an eclipse of faith. An eclipse of faith so daunting that he eventually left the ministry although he later returned to it with new faith and vigor. Listen to every word of his testimony and let this strengthen your resolve this morning. He writes, To all of us who struggle with doubt, Lord, there are times when my experience is the experience of Thomas. There are days when I hear not the bells of Easter morn. There are times when I tread the road of Emmaus, but meet not the risen Christ. I stand on the mountain of Galilee, and there comes no voice among the breezes. I sail on Galilee's lake, and I see no vision of you walking on the water. I frequent the upper room, but get no hint of your presence. My faith cannot walk by sight in hours like these, Lord. What shall I do? Hast thou a remedy for the loss of light? Yes, my Father, Thou hast a gate where faith can enter without seeing where it goes. Its name is love. O Lord, lead me by that gate when my light is dim. When I cannot follow him to Olivet, let me worship him on Calvary. When I lose sight of his risen form, do not shut me out of the hearing and bearing of his name. If I cannot soar with him in heaven, let me at least go back to finish his work on earth. Let me mourn with the Marthas, whose Lazarus I cannot raise. Let me pray with the paralytics, whose weakness I cannot cure. Let me sing to the sightless, whose eyes I cannot open. Let me lend to the lepers the touch of a brother's hand. Let me find for the fallen a chance to renew their days. Then shall my Easter morn shine again through the clouds of night. Then shall I know the meaning of the words Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Let us pray. Lord, I do know how Thomas felt. I do have seasons when I go through doubt, and even this morning there are things that I don't understand. But I know you, and I believe you really do work all things together for the good to those who love you. So change our doubts to faith and our fear to courage. Let us always be honest with you those times when we do doubt. And please use your spirit and your word and the saints to drive those doubts away. For we do believe. Help thou our unbelief. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.